Jonah 2, plus bonus verse from the end of chapter 1. Now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish, fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. And then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Go ahead and sit down. Well, good morning. As we uh, prepare to worship the Lord through his word, would you join me in prayer uh, that he might enlighten our eyes and that he might lead and guide and direct us in this time of worship. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that is sure, that it is right, that it is true. Father, that it is profitable, that it's here to make the simple wise. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your guidance and your direction. And Father, you bring it to us through your word and through the Holy Spirit that enlightens our understanding. So, Father, we desire to worship you this morning. We desire to give you praise and thanksgiving for the great and awesome God that you are. Father, help us to see you clearly here in the pages of Scripture today. Father, then help us to see ourselves clearly as the Spirit reveals thoughts and intents and actions. And then, Father, guide us and direct us that with thanksgiving we might make changes. And Father, that we might um, offer you the worship of a sacrificed life and a life that, uh, from having been here this morning, Father, I pray would better understand and conform to your word and your will. And we can only ask this, and it can only be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. I asked Joel to include Jonah one seventeen. We've got bookends around the sermon this morning. 117 tells us, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then at the end of chapter 2, verse 10, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah onto the dry land. You know, these are very familiar bookends for us, right? We're all very familiar when we look at the account of Jonah with physically what happened to Jonah at this stretch of time. He'd been thrown into the sea by the sailors, and God prepares a great fish. The fish swallows Jonah. Three days later, Jonah finds himself on dry land. But in between these bookends lies chapter 2, and we don't want to miss that. In our familiarity of the story and the account and what happens to Jonah, those weren't just a silent Three days. And so as we look at chapter 2 this morning together, it's a narrative. We're going to get a look here at what God was doing spiritually inside of Jonah. We're going to see what Jonah felt, what Jonah thought, what Jonah experienced, and then what God wrought the change in Jonah's heart and what Jonah prayed when he found himself in this great distress. And it's important to look here. And not just look at physically what's happening on the outside. Because these chapters give us great insight and understanding in how God wants to work in our lives. In the lives of his people. In the lives of his servants. 
in the lives of those that he loves and he cares for. Now, very importantly, before we dive any further, um, this account is not a myth. It's not a story. It's not even an allegory, which would be a story told to make a purpose or a point. What happened to Jonah in this three-day period And hence, the only way that this prayer that we're going to look at in Jonah 2 would be valid is that this experience actually happened. There was a real prophet. His name was Jonah. We see him spoken of in other books of the Bible. He was disobedient to God. He was swallowed by a a great fish. Could be a whale, could be a sea creature, could be something special God created. He was there for three days. And then he was put back up on dry land alive. Turn with me to Matthew 12. I'm going to appeal to the best authority we would have in terms of establishing that this is a real account, something that actually happened. So turn, chapter 12, Matthew, in verse 38. Jesus is talking here to the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're disputing and they're questioning him. They're questioning his authority and they're asking for a sign. Give us some sign. Prove to us that you are who you are or who you claim to be. Now up to this point, Jesus has worked many miracles and many things already. And he's going to deny them this request for a sign. But he's going to remind them that they already have a very powerful sign from the Old Testament. Starting in verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master... We would see a sign from you. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Christ himself speaks of the account of Jonah as true, as fact, and as a forerunner or a foreshadow of his own resurrection. So church, if you are here this morning and sure that Christ was raised from the dead after three days in the tomb, you must be just as sure that Jonah was put back up on dry land, alive, three days after being in the belly of this great fish. So this morning in chapter 2, let's not focus too much on the fish and think of him as being this vehicle, right, that God appointed to get from Jonah from point A. You're over here where I don't want you headed to Tarshish to point B. It's interesting, as we look at the text today, we don't even find out where point B was. We don't know where Jonah ends up. He's just back on dry land somewhere. So let's not look at the fish as just God's vehicle because it was God's divine affliction for Jonah. It was something sovereign God did so that Jonah would turn to God for his mercy. And that's the theme of chapter 2 this morning. My summary sentence would be, A sovereign's God's gracious discipline restores his servants. Our sovereign God's gracious discipline restores his servants. And what we're going to see this morning is God's attributes of sovereignty and his attribute of grace work together to bring repentance. A repentance that saves and a repentance that restores his people. So remember who Jonah is. A prophet selected by God and charged with a work to do. He's God's servant. God's chosen. And if you're a believer here this morning, I want to remind you of who you are. Like Jonah, you are chosen by God. Like Jonah, in his love, he called you to him. And like Jonah, he has a job and a mission for you to accomplish. So after the study today, let's be assured that our God equips, he disciplines, and he leads those that he loves and that he calls. And we'll look at this in three sections this morning. The first section will be the first couple of verses, and really they give the summary in the first two verses of what happened to Jonah. 
So he gives us kind of his basic logic up front in the first two verses is a nutshell. And then as we look down through, as we look at verses 3 into 6, we see the particular discipline that God brought. Okay, what were the afflictions that befell Jonah and what were their purpose? And then finally, at the end of the chapter, in verses 7, 8, and 9, we see Jonah's right response to the afflictions. We see what Jonah responded in the right way to what God was trying to do in his life. So with that, I'll read 17, 1, and 2, and we'll get into our first section, that the sovereign, gracious God turns a sinful Jonah back to him. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, and God put out of the, the Lord prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and you heard my voice. Let's first look for evidences of God's sovereignty. That's the first attribute of God I'd like to draw our attention to as we look at Jonah this morning. Okay, the first part of the heart of God that we can see here. And we've seen already ample evidences of his sovereignty. The book of Jonah begins with a statement that only a sovereign God could make. Look at 1.1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The book of Jonah begins with a command. A command from a sovereign. A command that is to be obeyed. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah spoke to him. We also see, as we looked in chapter 1, Jonah rejecting this call, trying to turn away from his sovereign, and very interesting, as Steve pointed out a couple of weeks ago, what does the sovereign do? He enables him. He provides him with funding. He provides him with a ship. Right? Those came from God. Right? Jonah didn't go find those on his own. Right? God sent him the funding and the ship he needed to go the wrong way. And that was a very important point from a couple of weeks ago that I've reflected on very often. I appreciate Steve bringing that out. God allows this passage because God's working. He said, okay, here's the funds, here's the ship. You've got an appointment with a storm. On your way, Jonah. We'll meet again here very soon. Right? And that's what we see is the next step of the sovereign God is to bring a storm. Right? Jonah, you're disobeying, you're headed the wrong way. It's time for me now to set some afflictions. Jonah, I need your attention. The storm is raised, and finally, after trying all sorts of things, the mariners agree, and they take an action. They pick up Jonah, and they cast him into the waves. And now we see, as we get to verse 17, the Lord prepared a great fish, another sovereign act. Right? As Jonah goes into the water, and we aren't given from the text, whether it's immediately upon hitting the water, or after sinking for a certain period of time, But the sailors are out of the storm, and Jonah is now in the fish that God has sent. So this is all controlled and worked by a sovereign God. And we see the sovereign God beginning to send afflictions. And Jonah and we in the account of Jonah are at a very critical turning point. When the afflictions come, we have choices to make. And Jonah has a choice to make. How will he react to this discipline that God's provided in his life? Will he turn to God and be saved? Or will he persist and remain in disobedience and perish? It's a key question. The sovereign God is using his creation, his power, to grab a hold of Jonah. We see it right here with this great fish coming and the great waves that God controls. He's working to get Jonah's attention for a purpose to get him back on track. God designed and desires this to happen under inflictions. He designed afflictions for a purpose, and he's got a desire for how we react when afflictions come. It says in the word, in their afflictions they will seek me early, and they will seek me earnestly. God has a purpose in these afflictions that he sends. They are there that we might seek him early, early, and that we might seek him 
earnestly. So God is using sovereignty here. He's using all the power, well, not all the power, but he's using the power that he has. It's on display. Storms, great fish, miracles are at work. And he's using it for a purpose, to lead Jonah to realize God's second attribute that we're going to look at this morning, and that's his grace. And we see in verses 1 and 2, Jonah's response to God's offer of grace. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and you heard my voice. The gracious God hears Jonah's cry. This disobedient, willful, go-my-own-way Jonah to the point of others have to cast him into the sea to get his attention. He turns to God and cries, and God in his grace, in his mercy, hears him. The second attribute of God, his graciousness, is expressed here in several ways. We're going to look at, I think, four. We're going to look at the privilege of God's grace, the patience of God's grace, the persistence of God's grace, and finally, the pleasure of God's grace. So let's look first at privilege. You, God in his grace, has given his servants the privilege of the light of the revelation of himself through his word and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. But folks, with this light, with this privilege comes responsibility on our part. With the knowledge of what God desires becomes the responsibility of obedience. Right? Our only right response to God opening our eyes to what's the right and the true and the pleasing way is to accept it and to follow it. It was God's revelation of himself to Jonah that eventually opened Jonah's eyes to turn to him. As I began to read through this account, I noticed, especially as we get into, as Jonah gives us what he actually cried to the Lord in verses 3, 4, and 5, and on into 6, no less than 8 to 10 times, Jonah directly quotes a psalm or a passage of Lamentations. Jonah knew God's word. He had the light of God's word inside him because it came out when he was in affliction. Jonah knew it was there. And it's just amazing to see his cry mirror the cry of the psalmist David or the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations. He knew God. He knew God's word. He knew his responsibility before God. But he also knew that God would be merciful and God would hear his cry and hear his prayer. You know, we best pray God's will by praying God's word. This would be a reason to meditate on scripture and to have portions of scripture that we carry in our heart. Because when the affliction comes, don't we want to have God's word there to come to the fore, to be on our tongue, to guide us and direct us, that we might do God's will by praying his word. So the greater our understanding of God, then the closer it logically follows, right, that we will stay to him, but also the sooner we will return to him. The greater our understanding of God and who he is, the sooner we will turn back to him or to him for help and not go our own way and try to do it in our own design and into our own pattern. So are you in the light this morning? Do you have the privilege of God's light? And if you do, are you growing in it? Is it alive and active within you? So our gracious God has given us the privilege of his light and his word that we can carry with us. He's also given us evidence here of his patience. As we look at Jonah, in chapter 1, verse 6, The shipmaster comes to Jonah and says unto him, What mean thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that your God will think upon us 
and we perish not. Jonah 1, chapter, or Jonah's chapter 1, verse 6, Jonah's asked to pray. He's asked to go to God in prayer because of the afflictions that are going on around him, because of the storm that is tossing this boat back and forth and that the mariners found themselves in. But we go on through verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Now the sailors are involved. Jonah, won't you pray? Jonah, won't you do something? Jonah, why don't you go to your God? Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. Silence. No prayer. At least we have no evidence that Jonah at all prayed to the Lord at this time. It's only as he finds himself in the water and the fish either approaches or has swallowed him. Two one, Jonah two one tells us, then Jonah prayed. Finally. Right? Finally. The first recourse. Finally, Jonah prayed. And God was patient. He continued to work. He continued to turn up the heat. He continued to listen for the cry of Jonah. So in addition to the privilege and the patience that God shows in his graciousness, he also shows his persistence. God will not and cannot relent when one of his children are in sin and disobedience. He cannot and he will not relent. For a believer who's engaged in sin or rebellion, the question really is, how long will I persist? And how severe will the consequences need to be? That's the question at heart. Wasn't that the question for Jonah? Right? Jonah, how long will you persist in heading to Tarshish, in refusing to go to Nineveh? How long will you persist in that? And Jonah, how heavy are the consequences going to need to be? Well, we're going to see the consequences were either death or near-death experience for Jonah. But God would not relent. He would not allow Jonah to happily sail off to Tarshish against God's will. God cannot use us until we're the end of ourselves and our own devices. And then we turn our eyes to him for deliverance. So God in his grace, in his graciousness, his persistence, he doesn't let us go. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Then the final, the fourth aspect we're going to look at is pleasure. The pleasure that God takes in our repentance is evidence of his mercy. Look in verse 2. I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. You know, we cannot ask God to bless us while we're in the sin. Do you notice what Jonah prays here? He doesn't pray, God, get me out of this storm. He doesn't say, God... Get me out of this fish. God, get me out of the trouble that I'm in. God, help me. Get me away from the afflictions that I'm experiencing. We're going to see that's not what Jonah prays. He asks for forgiveness. He asks for restoration. He just turns back to the Lord. We will see that this was a repeated cry from Jonah. It wasn't a one time, God, help me, and it was done. He had three days of time to pray and to bring these things before the Lord. But God did take pleasure in hearing Jonah. What we don't see here as we look through chapter 2 is that direct language of repentance. We've talked about repentance a lot (laughs) in several different sermons and times. And as we're going through the churches, uh, repentance was a big theme that came up several times. Because repentance is, one, agreeing with God about my sin, right? that it is sin, and it's a sin against God. And secondly, agreeing to turn and go the other way. But we do see here in the book of Jonah is a restored relationship between Jonah and God, which is the fruit of repentance, which is the fruit of repentance. So we see the fruits of repentance here, that Jonah's turning to God in the restoration of his relationship with God that God hears Jonah and delivers him. The fact that we can even repent is evidence of God's goodness. Romans 2.4 says, 
Or despise thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The fact that we can even repent shouts from the mountaintop, we have a good and a gracious and a loving God. Commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way, An appreciation of God's goodwill to us, notwithstanding our offenses, gives us boldness of access to him and opens the lips of prayer which were closed with the sense of guilt and dread of wrath. I know I've been under the weight of sin at times in my life. I'm sure you all have as well. Do you feel guilt? Do you feel a dread of God and his wrath? And does the enemy try to use that to get you to go your own way? God won't hear. God won't care. What you've done is too bad he's done with you. Aren't those whispers the enemy wants to put into our hearts? But they aren't true. They aren't true at all. God, the goodness of God, wants to lead us to repentance. He wants us to come to him. He wants us to be bold in our access to him. He wants us to know that there's love and forgiveness when we repent. We see here sovereignty. We see here grace. We see a sovereign God's gracious discipline restoring his servant. So how do you view God when you're in the ocean? When you find yourself like Jonah in the ocean and a great fish is about to swallow you up, What thoughts about God go through your mind? Do you question his sovereignty? Do you question his grace? And ask, God, why are you doing this to me? Me. And turn away from him? Or do you have a right view like Jonah did of his sovereignty? Do you have a right view of him being a gracious God, a good God that desires you to come to him in repentance and is working all things for you to come to him in repentance? Do you see his plenteous mercy and turn to him? And like Jonah can say, I cried by reason of my affliction and the Lord heard me. Does the Lord hear you? Does your cry go up to him? The remainder of chapter 2 now gives us the inside story. So there's the summary. There's the big picture of what's going on. Now we're going to take a look at the actual afflictions that God brought into Jonah's life and how Jonah accepts the afflictions as the consequences of his sin. Starting in verse 3. For you, listen to the, uh, I'm going to put a little uh, emphasis on a few key words here. For you, cast me into the deep in the middle of the seas, and the floods compassed about me. All your billows and all your waves passed over me. Who's the active agent here? Who's in control? Who's sovereign? We see Jonah recognizes it's God. You could look at the text from chapter 1 and say, wait a minute, wait, 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 Jonah's got that wrong. Who threw him into the sea? The sailors, right? The text says the sailors. But Jonah understands what we need to understand. All these things that happen are at God's command and God's control. Who caused the sailors to pick up Jonah and cast him into the sea? But the sovereign God. And Jonah recognizes that. And he says, God, you're the one that cast me into the sea. And he said, and it's your waves and it's your billows that are taking me under. It's your discipline upon me, God. And I now see that you are intentionally working for my good and you are the source of these problems that I have. How dire was his situation? As you read down through verses 4 through 6, there's some pretty precarious and scary things happening here. Jonah finds himself in the open sea. In that time, that was sure death. 
but it wasn't even a calm sea. It was a sea with floods, waves crashing over him. He says he was cast out of God's sight. The depths, he said, closed in around him. He's going down. He's unable to remove these weeds wrapped around his head. He finds himself at the bottom of the mountains, low, down in the water, barred in the earth with no escape. It says in 6b, the earth with her bars were about me forever. Can you imagine a more frightening and a more potentially hopeless place to be than at the bottom of the sea? Out of communication with God. Weeds wrapped around your head and feeling like the earth had closed in around you. Now, as you read through this, did it raise a question? There's a question that's begged here. Did Jonah die, or did he not die? Did Jonah perish, and did God bring him back to life three days later? Or did God put Jonah in the belly of the whale, and it was like Jonah died, that it was like being in a grave? And as many commentators as I read, you can get as many opinions on what actually happened to Jonah. We don't actually hear. We don't actually tell. And that could be one of those controversies that we could get involved in and miss the heart of what's going on here. What is going on here is Jonah is tasting the wages of sin. He's facing either death in the face or he has died. He is facing the wages of sin. And God miraculously rescues him. Because it's a great miracle either way for God to raise him back from the dead three days later or for God to miraculously preserve him in the belly of a great sea creature for three days. Either way, we've got a miracle-working God working on a servant who has fully tasted the wages of sin, which are death. So not not to stir controversy, but it might be, if you'd like to discuss over the tables today whether Jonah died or not. But don't be uh, dogmatic about it, please. (laughs) So what we can see here is Jonah fully tasting the wages of death. And we see how dire the consequences of sin are. You know, sin can look pleasant for a season. Hebrews 11.25, speaking of Moses, says, He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. If sin did not look pleasant on the upside on the front side, when it first comes across your path, it'd be pretty easy to resist, wouldn't it? But sin doesn't come with all the unpleasantness right up front. It comes disguised. It comes hidden. It comes in a package that might look like something desirable. But it's only a short season before these types of consequences that we've just read about that are happening to Jonah begin to creep into our lives if we harbor sin. Your sin will hold you longer and take you farther than you ever thought you wanted to go. If you choose to allow a sin, that sin will hold on to you for longer and will take you farther than you ever wanted to go in the first place. You know, as God's servants, we cannot disobey God with impunity. Turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to start in verse 6. Over to Hebrews 12. I think it's an important principle for us here about how God will not allow his servants and his children to disobey with impunity. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 6. Very familiar passages. For whom the Lord loveth, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? 
And then verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised by it. Because sin's impact is so negative, because sin is so harmful in the life of a believer, our sovereign God expresses his love by disciplining us. He doesn't want it there. He doesn't want us under that curse, under that weight, under the pressure that Jonah felt. He wants us free from that as a loving, heavenly father. So he brings consequences to drive us away from that sin and towards him. Through Christ, he has adopted us as his children, and therefore we are always under his constant care. But we have a choice. We have a choice to make. When God's discipline comes, we can choose to get bitter, or we can choose to get better. We can choose to look at the consequences and say, God, you're not just, you're not right. How dare you? Why would you? How could you? Like a child throwing a tantrum. And parents, you probably have all understood this dealing with toddlers. As you're lovingly administering discipline, at times, they aren't exercised by it. Right? And then the discipline is reapplied. Maybe in a different way, at a different time. But the discipline comes again. And children, we understand, and even as adults, as we come under the Lord's chastening, that it doesn't seem pleasant at the time. Right? When the discipline comes, it's not pleasant. Not pleasant for the one being disciplined, certainly. And not pleasant for the one administering the discipline. But, nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that are exercised thereby. So those who accept the discipline understand that it's God's work to restore them and place them and rid them of that sin in their life, and to set them free to greater joy and service for him, those are the ones who are exercised by it and get better. So the afflictions we suffer when we are disciplined by God, they come from our loving, sovereign God as a consequence of our sins. And over time, they should work to reduce our desire for sin. As you look at this account of Jonah and you see the consequences of sin in his life for disobeying, the consequences that come for disobeying, I hope they stir you not to make the same mistakes in your own life. And as you think upon the times that God has disciplined you and had to step into your life and say, that's not right, headed the wrong direction, here are consequences that need to come to bear because of these sins. I hope that those reduce your appetite and make you more aware of the need to walk with the Lord. So how and where is God trying to alert you to danger and sin in your life this morning? Where are the warning signals going off as you sit here this morning? How severe are the consequences going to need to get for you to turn to the Lord? How far down into the water are you going to need to go? Maybe you're considering something this morning. Considering pursuing something counter to God's will. It looks attractive right now. But maybe it's something your parents said, I don't want you involved in. Maybe it's a website that you've been counseled to stay away from or a whole host of other things, that there's just some initial warnings going off. So as you're considering that, could it be that you are blinded to the potential cost? Could it be you're only seeing the pretty package on the outside and not what's on the inside? If you find yourself in those types of situations, I encourage you this week, Look here again at what Jonah experienced. Count the cost and turn away from sin. Well, our gracious God does not leave Jonah flailing, drowning, dying in the water. 
as we look in verses 6 through 9, 6b, we see the details of the cry of Jonah. We hear gracious God hears him. You know, we cannot ask God to bless us in our sin and just ask him to remove its consequences. What we ask him, and we'll see from Jonah, is for him to lead us out of our sins and forgive us. So 6b to 7. Yet thou, yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came unto thee, unto your holy temple. So we see now how Jonah turned to God and how his relationship to God is restored. He's no longer speaking about the trial. Look at the change now. Right? In the previous verses, he's talking about all the aspects of the afflictions. Right? The drowning, the seas, the seaweed, the death, you know, earth closing in around him. And here we see now a change of perspective. He's no longer speaking about those trials, but he's speaking of the Lord. He's got a new focus. And he's no longer fleeing from the Lord, but he's looking to the Lord. The afflictions have done their work. They've brought and restored Jonah to the Lord. He is now in the right place. You know, the psalmists instruct us to do this. Psalm 25.15 says... My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. And the analogy here is when you hear the net, that's something Satan has cast in our way, trying to trip us and encumber our Christian walk. But it says if our eyes are fixed upon the Lord, he'll take care of those things. He'll pull us up out from that net and that trouble that we find ourselves in. Or Psalm 121.1. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence comes my help. Where do we turn when we need help? Our eyes go to the Lord. So in trouble, we must repent and focus our eyes on the promises of this gracious, merciful Lord. Because there's a warning here in Jonah. There is a wrong way to respond to our afflictions. I thought verse 8 looked odd. It almost didn't fit in the flow of the text. But it is the warning sign. Verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Or as the ESV version put it, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who intentionally cling to worthless, hopeless idols forfeit the mercy and loving kindness of God that could be theirs. And isn't that true? There is another route here. There's another choice when we're faced with troubles and with fruitlessness. It involves turning to other counselors, turning to activities, or turning to self-effort for our security and our deliverance from the trouble. This path turns away from the counsel of God, the counsel of his word, the light that he's given us the privilege to have. It turns us away from the grace and the mercy and the peace and the love of God and only gives us the empty rudiments of the world. We're left with man's own effort, without any power, without any grace. And what this looks like, and what this feels like, and I speak from personal experience, is you're trying harder, and you're getting nowhere. You're trying harder, and you're getting nowhere. And you feel like you're on a treadmill, and you're exhausted, and you're discouraged, and your hope is waning. It's all evidence you're facing the wrong way. You're living in verse 8. You're paying regard to vain idols and you're forsaking your hope of steadfast love if that characterizes your response under affliction. Because in contrast, we have what God desires in verse 9. Jonah says, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. 
I will pay all that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah repents. And he turns to God and look what he says. I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. It begins with thanksgiving. And pause and think for a minute. Where is he when he's giving thanksgiving? We haven't made it to the other bookend yet. Right? Verse 10 has not arrived. Where has Jonah decided to be thankful? In the belly of the fish, in his affliction. In the midst of it, in the peak of the affliction, Jonah now realizes to be thankful. And you know, that needs to be our first response, church, when an affliction comes across our way, is to give thanks to God for it. Right? Don't we see that God's using these afflictions to move and guide and direct us, to lean and depend on his grace and his mercy? Shouldn't we then be thankful for them? You know, it could be something as simple as the affliction of not being able to find your keys when you go out the door. Right? How different would it be if you said, thank you, God, for hiding these keys from me at this moment of time. You must have a purpose for this, but Lord, I really would appreciate it if you'd help me find them. Right? Wouldn't that be a different feel than running around the house like a chicken with a head cut off or like that squirrel that's floating in air back there? I'm sure you've all observed him at some point in time in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, how better would be our response? And I know that's a very lighthearted example, and there are heavier examples out there, right? Other afflictions that we face are much heavier. They are losses. They are painful. They are difficult. But our starting point, our starting point to God's mercy is to give thanks. And it can be a sacrifice. Right? Jonah says it was a sacrifice. It wasn't easy for him to do. But he did it. Because it's what's right. And it's what's true. Because the word does tell us, in everything give thanks. Because that is the will of God in Christ concerning us. The other bold the second bold important statement here is that he will pay that which I have vowed. All right, I'll go to Nineveh. I promise to be your prophet. Your word spoke to me. You told me where to go and what to do. I will obey. So thanksgiving and obedience, both are found here within the affliction. And then finally, Maybe the greatest declaration in the book of Jonah and the de greatest declaration in all the pages of Scripture. We see it throughout Scripture. But stated here directly, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. What a beautiful tie we have of Old Testament to New Testament. Right? The old is a foreshadowing of Christ's coming. Here we have a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. Right? We've got Jonah three days raised again. That's a foreshadowing. Even Christ refers to it as, shouldn't you have seen back in the old that this was going to happen with me coming in the new? And we also see it in terms of salvation being of the Lord. The Old Testament saints look forward in faith to the coming of Christ and were saved. The New Testament saints look back in faith on the completed work of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The Bible is consistent from page to page. Salvation is of the Lord, and it comes with faith in Jesus Christ. God owns it. It's God's to have. And since he owns it, we cannot obtain it or earn it on our own. It comes only from him. It's given to us by him. And we accept by responding in faith to the revealed Jesus Christ. So praise the Lord. A gracious God does hear our cries and restores us. He hears Jonah's cry and restores him. So this morning, and whatever you may be facing, we're all facing, I'm sure, something. But in whatever you might be facing, 
Will you throw yourself completely on the mercy of God this morning? If you know someone facing something very hard and difficult, will you encourage them to do the same? Let's not give them worldly wisdom. Let's not give platitudes. Let's not give psychology. But will you take the word of hope to somebody who needs it? Just ask, when's the last time you expressed gratefulness to God for an affliction? So in conclusion, there's still one last question on the table. And that's why. Why does God do this? Why does God pursue Jonah? Why does God pursue us in this way? Why? There's plenty of people in the world. He's got plenty of time to get done what he needs to get done. Doesn't need us, per se. So why? Three things to consider. First, because he promises to do this in his word. He says clearly, I will never leave you or forsake you. So one of the reasons he doesn't leave us is he promises not to, and God cannot break his promise. Second, is his love. Talked about this a little bit through the preaching this morning. He knows the consequences and the effect that sin will have in our lives. And he loves us too much to allow it to ravage us and and to bring us to the point of death. He loved Jonah too much to just let him sink to the bottom and remain there forever. You know, an opening stanza of a song, Love Lifted Me, really highlights this point. You know, I love the hymns and the songs that really have rich scriptural meat to them. You know, they don't just tickle our ear. They don't just pull on our emotions. But they bring us closer, right? They bring us closer to the will and the word of God. The hymn, Love Lifted Me, says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. So the third, so we see here, it's God's love that lifts us out when we're far from the peaceful shore. And then the third reason that God would do this is found in our bookend, verse 10. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. God had work for Jonah to do. He's got work for each of us to do. So he doesn't want to leave us in the waters, in the belly of the fish. He wants to put us on dry land, and he wants to put us on track that we might serve him and do the fruitful work he desires to do through us. Yes, the sovereign God's gracious discipline does restore his servants. He does restore us to his service. And we see here how God disciplined Jonah to return him to service. He prepared a fish, and finally, these afflictions brought about by Jonah's disobedience were severe enough to get Jonah to cry out to his gracious God for deliverance and salvation. You know, when we're able to praise God for his faith and for his salvation and for his deliverance, that he can restore us to his service. So when God's disciplined us and used that to restore us to the path that we should be on, we need to walk down that path. It would be foolish for Jonah to go find another ship, (laughs) right? Say, Tarshish, here I come. Let's try it again. Right? No, he knows. He now understands. It'd be foolish to go back. Right? It's time for Jonah to go on. And we're going to see in verse 3 that he does. Maybe not perfectly. But he does go on. God is always looking for and working for our return to him. So do not delay. 
Now, there are scars and there are consequences to our disobedience. And they grow deeper if we do delay. You know, did you think about this this week? What do you think Jonah looked like at the end of verse 10? After three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, vomited up onto dry land. You know, was he scarred? Were there consequences? They were for Jonah. What about the sailors? What about the captain? What about those that put goods on that ship? Did they suffer consequences from Jonah's sin? Yeah, not only Jonah suffered. Right? Those around us can suffer as well. And didn't the people of Nineveh suffer? Wasn't there a delay in God's word of life and light and hope coming to that great city of Nineveh? Weren't they impacted by Jonah's disobedience as well? There's consequences when we willfully choose to disobey God. And I pray that we would quickly allow our sovereign's gracious discipline to restore us to his service. A couple weeks ago during prayer time, we talked about that when we pray God's word, we better pray God's will. Right? If we want to be praying in God's will, we pray God's word. And I think here, We've got a prayer modeled for us in Jonah chapter 2. And it might be incomplete in some ways. As I said, we don't see the direct wording of repentance and other things. So we've got the rest of the Council of Scripture to give us some additional insight. But here in the prayer of Jonah, I see four things I think that would be good to incorporate into a closing prayer. First we see Jonah acknowledges God's sovereignty and mercy on him. So the first step of this prayer is to acknowledge God's sovereignty and mercy. Then he acknowledges his hopelessness to remedy his sin and acknowledges responsibility for the consequences of his sin. The third is an offer of thanksgiving to God for the correction and for his restoring salvation. And the fourth then is a desire spoken to draw near and walk in obedience to God. So acknowledge God for his sovereignty and his mercy. Right? Pray to God about these attributes. Secondly, acknowledge our condition, that we're hopeless, that we're under the consequences of our own sin without ability to remedy it by ourselves. Third, be grateful to the God for his correction, for the afflictions that he brought and the salvation that he promises. And then fourth, purpose to walk with him forward in obedience. So if God's been at work, maybe through an ocean or a great fish, and he's showing you where you have disobeyed, and that consequences have come upon you and others because of this disobedience, and you desire his restoration, please consider this prayer of Jonah. For those of you who cannot claim the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this could be a call salvation as well in this prayer. It would be turning to God for his sovereignty and his mercy. It would be acknowledging that you're hopeless to take care of your own sin, your own self, in your own way. You acknowledge with thanksgiving that he's provided Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the one who can remedy your sin condition. And it can be a spoken then desire to be in his word and guided and directed to live a life of obedience to him. So this could be a prayer of salvation, and today could be the day for you. But also, if you're a believer here, this could be a prayer of restoration. That, Lord, I've been walking my own way, I've been doing my own thing, I've disobeyed my parents in this area. Lord, I'm participating in things and discussions that I should not be. I'm neglecting the study of your word. It could be any number of things. This would be a great time to bring it before him on the basis of his word and in the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we do fully acknowledge you as we've seen through the pages of your word here in the book of Jonah 
that you are a sovereign God in control of all things. And Father, you wield that sovereignty in the way of mercy. Father, you are also a God of great compassion and love and of mercy. And Father, we acknowledge that we're willful, that sin comes along and we're lured away by its attractive packaging. But Father, that we're hopeless then when entangled in sin and we begin to see the ugly consequences of it in our lives and the lives of those around us, that we are hopeless to remove and extract ourselves from its grip. And Father, that's with great thanksgiving then we come before you that you've provided Jesus Christ, Lord, to deliver us from those sins. He had full victory over them and he fully paid the price for them. Father, may we always be thankful and mindful of that and turn to you when we find ourselves entangled in sin and with joy and thankfulness receive your correction and your restoring salvation. And then, Father, when we find ourselves like Jonah, again on dry land, Father, may we desire wholeheartedly to walk with you in obedience, led and guided and directed by your word and by your spirit. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.